So I entitled my message from Jesus' question, Would You Like to Get Well? But I want to start with a prologue before I get into my main outline, just because I want to. And uh, the question is, do you ever wonder if any of this stuff that you read in the Bible is actually true? You hear these stories, you hear about healings. Did any of this really happen? Or did this group of salty Galilean fishermen pull one over on the whole world by constructing an elaborate lie that their murdered teacher, Jesus, came back from the dead and then they convinced enough people to start a world religion? I mean, hasn't the Bible been mistranslated along the way? In fact, isn't this passage proof of it? If you have your Bible in front of you, you notice that it says one, two, three, five on the verse order. I would encourage you to to bring a Bible. I know we put the verses up here. Can you put it back up there real quick? Um, It's interesting. Unless you have a King James Bible or a New King. um, And based on his philosophical views of religion, he developed this idea that John's gospel was this later gospel that was a synthesis of Jewish religion and this new sect of Christianity. And it was clearly not written by somebody who knew Jerusalem because there's no pool of Bethesda. It doesn't exist. In the second century, it didn't exist. And, this, and he says, well, this, this was written in the second century, so there's no pool. So this guy's just making this stuff up. It's an elaborate story. It's, a, it's an elaborate uh, analogy for us to live our lives by and have Jesus as an example, you know, some kind of crap like that. <clears throat> and uh, so he was right because in the, in the second century, the pool of Bethesda didn't exist and neither did it exist in the 1830s. So he's looking at, he's looking at Jerusalem and saying, whoever wrote this didn't even know Jerusalem because it says that it was by the sheep gate and it was a pool and it's not there. The problem is, the problem with it, you know, your philosophical ideas sometimes is that they're not true. So around 1910, the pool of Bethesda was found near the Sheep Gate in Jerusalem. So as the archaeologists are, di- archaeologists, archaeologists, archaeologists are digging and uh, they're, they're finding stuff and then they come across this big square pool and another square pool right next to it and they start to think to themselves, that, look, look what we found. We found inside the city, this is John 5 too, we found inside the city near the Sheep Gate a pool of Bethesda with five covered porches. Now, instead of digging, you know, for hundreds of years and trying to find this, they could have read that verse because it perfectly describes what they found. So what we find out is the school of higher criticism, which is pretty much now just thrown into the waste bin of history. And uh, they were completely wrong. And their argument was, you can't trust the Bible. Jesus is a hoax, Jesus is a myth, the Bible's been mistranslated, blah, 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 it's all hogwash, it's all made up, and it's not even basically historically reliable. They made up a pool that doesn't even exist. Well, he was wrong. Actually, time and time again throughout history, the Bible is shown to be historically reliable. So the argument goes the other way. If the Bible's basically historically reliable, maybe we can trust the other things that it says as well. It's interesting, verses 1, 2, 3, 5. I could talk to you more about this. But the same thing happened here around 500 AD. We have, we have pieces of the Bible, pieces of the New Testament, manuscripts going back all the way to 95 AD. We have a, we have a piece 
a manuscript called the John Ryland Manuscript that goes back to 95. And a manuscript is a copy of the original. We don't have any of the original letters that Paul wrote or John wrote. We don't have any of the originals. All we have are copies. We call them manuscripts. So the first manuscript that pops up, 95. So that's a copy of what would be the original or a copy of a copy. 95, Jesus is crucified in 33, right? And we know that's true now according to history. <laughs> but uh, so that's only 65 years before we start having copies of the originals. Okay, so that's 60 years. You guys maybe know someone that's been alive for 60 years. And if you told them, hey, 60 years ago, UFOs landed in Roswell, New Mexico. And, the government, you know, and they'd be like, no, they didn't. You know, because I was alive. I, I lived in Roswell. I didn't see it. I didn't see anything that happened. So 60 years is not a long time. 60 years is, in fact, way too short of a time to make up an elaborate myth to fool the whole world with. It takes like ages upon ages, like in Lord of the Rings. You know, when the, the ring falls in the water and it's down there for like an age and then they find it again. And some things that should have not been forgotten were, you know, kind of a, kind of a Lord of the Rings nerd. But uh, what, we see, what we see in this passage is Around 500 AD, this verse 4 pops up that says an angel went into the water, he stirred it, and then people would go get healed. Somebody along the, line, along the way took what was probably a marginal note in one of the manuscripts where they would write in the margins. Like your, our Bibles have notes on the bottom, footnotes, but they used to be in the margins. And they took that note and inserted it into the scripture. And we know because we have this picture, you can put up that picture, we have, the, we have a manuscript from 400 AD that, that doesn't have, that next one, that doesn't have this verse in it. This is the Codex Sinaiticus. This is the actual, like you're looking at a piece of manuscript for 400 AD, and, you, and it's, the, the digital annotation is not in it. But you see it says 1 John 1, 3, uh, or 1 John 5, 1 John 5, 3, 1 John 5, 5. It, 4 is not there. And like you see tips, loan, colon, xiphon, the, 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 the blind and the lame, and the, you know, they're, they're all there. And so it's interesting to see if we go back far enough, we have more accurate manuscripts that represent what was originally there. And we, we discover through textual criticism what the Bible actually says. No other document in the history of documents has been examined as thoroughly as your Bible. Has been eviscerated, has been vivisected as thoroughly as your Bible. And we continue to work on it because we're continuing to find manuscripts. We're continuing to find copies of the New Testament. And we can, we can come to an accurate understanding of what's actually there. That's why throughout John, you, throughout the scripture, you'll find some verses that are different. Because the King James Bible, as excellent of an English translation as it is, it was, it was made in 1611. Okay, that's a, that's a minute. That's, that's a, a ways back, right? But we found manuscripts after 1611. Okay, so we found the Sinaiticus in about 1734. We find this whole manuscript that was in a garbage bin in this monastery in Alexandria or somewhere. You know, these, these monks were using these old manuscripts for like kindling for their, for their stove. And uh, so they find this manuscript. It's newer than the King James Bible. So that's why, not to trash the King James Bible, it's a great translation, but it doesn't have all of the, the most accurate historical manuscripts to support it. So there's a manuscript tra- tradition, there's a manuscript family that's newer that many of our newer translations, like the ESV, the NIV, the, e- the NLT, you know, and these are, are based upon. And so that's why we, that's why we would feel justified in, in eliminating a verse like that from the scripture. Um, because it's, we see that in history, it actually wasn't there. It was probably a marginal note that got slipped in 
along the way. Um, so that was the prologue. So let, let's actually start what this Bible is about. And I just want to encourage you, you, the Bible has not been mistranslated. And the Bible is historically accurate. There's one event in the Bible that if it's not historically accurate, we might as well just go to the park. Jesus' resurrection. If Jesus was not raised from the dead, our faith is in vain. It's useless. If it's not an actual historic event. The Bible, God decides to wrap his truth in history and, and communicate to us in that way. Go find one shred of evidence for the Book of Mormon. Like, go, go find one of, the, one of the civilizations that they claim existed in New York. Like, they're not, there's, there's no Mar- Mormon archaeologists, okay? Because once Mormons start studying archaeology, the Mormon drops off. It's not true. The Bible is true. And I just want to encourage you with that as we, as we get going this morning. It's excellent to see how true the Bible is. So the, 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 message, the title of my message, Would You Like to Get Well?, deals with, don't start the video yet. I have a video. We found like some documentary from the first century of like a guy that got healed. It's really interesting to see. Um, so I wanted to show that video. But I, I want to preface it. It's a little bit hard to understand, you know, because in the first century uh, in Palestine, they spoke with English accents. So it's kind of, it's hard to understand them a little bit. But uh, it's a video of an ex-leper who's kind of having a conversation about his experience. So Let's, let's take a look at this. That, that video is so funny to me. If you didn't understand him, he said, I'm just sitting there and Jesus comes along and just heals me. He says, I'm like 18 years, I'm a leper with a trade and all of a sudden, like, I don't have anything to do. <laughs> and then at the end there, he gives him half a denarii and he gets mad. He goes, half a denarii for my whole life story. And then Brian walks away and, and says, there's no pleasing some people. And, that's, and then he goes, that's just what Jesus said, sir. <laughs> You know, as I read this passage, that guy came in my mind. Because the, the guy that we're interacting with today is kind of like that guy. He could care less. He doesn't even know who healed him. This guy's lame for 38 years. And then he's like, well, the guy told me to carry my mat. Well, who did? Well, I don't know. I don't know who it was. I mean, wouldn't it be important to you to know who healed you after 38 years of being unable to walk? 
interesting character. So, this is my outline. Jesus can heal. Jesus claims to be God. And Jesus confronts sin. So let's look at Jesus can heal. This story, obviously, is a story about healing. But it's not a story about healing in the way a lot of people present it. Jesus shows up, and he says, would you like to get well? And then the guy starts giving him his spiel. Okay, I can't. I have to go into the pool, and everyone always gets there before me. Because the legend about this pool, uh, apparently, is that the first one that gets in the water when it bubbles up is going to get healed. Now, we know it's sort of like, it's some kind of new age BS from Palestine. Because if there was a magical pool in history, we would have heard about it. Okay, but there's no evidence of this magical pool working in history. Okay, there's no historical evidence of it. All we have is the superstition that these people are following. And this guy has positioned himself. Now, this is interesting because it says it's by the Sheep Gate, which is one of the ways into Jerusalem. And Jesus is coming along with a whole bunch of other people to celebrate a big festival in Jerusalem. You know, it's like Bumbershoot in the Seattle Center. You know, everybody's flocking in, and there's different ways you can get in. So Jesus goes in through the Sheep Gate, and this guy's sitting by the Sheep Gate by this pool along with a whole bunch of other people that are blind or lame or whatever, and they want to get healed by this pool. So he's sort of in a strategic spot because all the people are flocking into Jerusalem, and he's giving them his spiel. Uh, I've been here for 38 years. Please help, you know, give me some alms. And he's probably making, you know, probably this is like his, his busy season, kind of like Christmas. Like when you're a beggar, like the Jewish holy days is when everybody shows up. That's when you make dough. So Jesus says, would you like to get well? He, like, he doesn't even register for him. What do you mean? Well, I can't get well, sir. I, you know, and he, he kind of goes into his thing. And Jesus says, get up and walk. Take up your mat and walk. This guy didn't evidence any sort of faith. Like, yes, I do. I would love to get healed. He's just there, and he's begging Jesus to give him money. And then Jesus says, get up and walk. It's interesting. A lot of times, uh, fi- uh, healing is presented by sort of this faith sort of like environment like you got to have faith and you know the more effort and more faith that you sort of evidence and and put into it with the right sort of emotional uh outburst like you're going to get healed and this guy is just sitting there and jesus says get up and walk and the guy didn't ask he wasn't i don't think he the question jesus said would you like to get well i don't know if it made sense to him his answer seems to make sense but it's more aimed at like uh kind of his sob story so jesus always reaches out to the people that are marginalized. Jesus is, he's in Jerusalem to celebrate, but he doesn't spend the majority of his ministry in Jerusalem. He spends his time with marginalized people. In fact, he was accused by people of being friends with the wrong people. Why are you friends with drunkards and tax collectors and sinners? They called him, they said that he was friends with them, right? Why would you be friends with these kind of people? Jesus always reaches out to those type of people. In Matthew chapter 9, the scripture says, later Matthew invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests, along with many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. But when the Pharisees saw this, they asked Jesus, why does your teacher eat with such scum? When Jesus heard this, he said, healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. Genius. Then he added, now go and learn the meaning of this scripture. I want you to show mercy and not offer sacrifices. For I have come to call those, not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. Praise God that he's calling sinners into his kingdom. 
Jesus reaches out to this guy because he's marginalized, because he's, he's the guy that nobody's going to reach out to. He, they're sick of him. He's been there for 38 years. They don't even help him get in the pool, right? Jesus doesn't condemn him. He just heals him. Now, Jesus didn't heal everyone there. Think about it. In Mark 5, Jesus is walking through a, a crowd of people who are reaching out to touch him. He's pushing through the crowd like they're getting, uh, they're, they're crowded in by people. And then all of a sudden, Jesus stops and says, who touched me? Right? And his disciples are like, what, what are you talking about? Everyone touched you. You're surrounded by people. He goes, no, no, someone, somebody reached out and touched me. And there was a woman that was healed after a long time. She reached out in faith because the Messiah could heal if you touched the, robes, the hem of his garment. And she, she touched it and she was healed. And Jesus said, your faith made you well. But he didn't heal everyone in that crowd. He didn't heal everyone at this pool. And we see, we see in Aaron's case, interestingly enough, Mike and I have been talking about sharing this and it just worked out to share today. Uh, Aaron got healed. Not everyone in his church that night got healed. God doesn't heal everyone. I mean, that's just what it is. Some people will espouse this false doctrine, this, this fake teaching that Jesus, that salvation and healing are one and the same thing. By his stripes, we are healed, they will say. And everyone is going to get healing in this life. And it's a false teaching. In fact, the last guy, that the, the, the newest sort of iteration of this guy, has a whole bunch of videos talking about healing and he's getting interviewed. And he says, there's no, there's no sickness in my theology. Jesus heals. So then I take his name, search so-and-so in the hospital. Boom, pops up. Pray for brother so-and-so. He's in the hospital. Like, there you go. <laughs> like, God's trying to reach out to these guys by using sickness. And most of the greatest faith healers in, in history, like, look up the end of their life, totally got sick, totally died of sickness. I I'm, I'm hope Jesus still saved them, and, and faith healing is not like a, a heretical idea. It's not like it's sort of an intramural debate. Like, people are still followers of Jesus, even if they have this sort of aberrant idea. But I would always seek to correct them. Jesus didn't heal everyone, and he still doesn't. Because, like Caleb said, healing is not the goal. Confronting sin is the goal. There's something much worse than being sick that Jesus is trying to protect us from that we see in this passage. In fact, look at the scripture even, even a little bit deeper here, and this is important. Galatians 4. Paul is writing a letter to the Galatians, the Apostle Paul, right? If anyone had faith, this cat had faith. Beaten, shipwrecked, wild animals. He faced it all. He says, surely you remember that I was sick when I first brought the gospel, the good news to you. And then they took care of him. Paul got sick. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul's sharing about his life. He's talking about the visions that he's seen. If I wanted to boast, I would be no fool in doing so. Because he's seen things that nobody would even be able to believe. But he says, to keep me from becoming proud, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger from Satan to torment me and keep me from becoming proud. Three different times I begged the Lord to take it away. And each time he said, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. So now I'm glad to boast about my weakness so that, my, so that the power of Christ can work through me. That's why I take pleasure in my weakness and the insults and the hardships and the persecutions and the troubles that I suffer for Christ. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. 
Because the glory of God is revealed through him. Because Jesus is revealed through him. This sick guy who somehow can't see or whatever his problem was, they had to take care of him. But he has this amazing message of salvation from Jesus. There's no sickness in Christianity. Salvation comes with healing, not for the Apostle Paul, apparently. Faith is to trust in God, not your assumptions about how the world should be. We're invited to be part of a bigger story than we can take in all at once. God is leading us and saying, follow me, trust me. And sometimes we want to dictate to God, well, I'll follow you if you heal me. He's saying, I'm not going to heal you right now. You're going to go through this. And I'm going to be with you. When you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'm going to be with you. I'll never leave you or forsake you. So God uses sickness in our lives. Sometimes we just get sick because we got sick, because we hung out with sick people. And it's that time of year. But sometimes God uses sickness to bring correction in our lives. So faith is to trust God. And I grew up in a faith-centered uh, background. I grew up in a four-square church, which is very much, very Pentecostal, very much faith-based, word of faith-based. And, and many conversations I had sort of were, were around this idea of, of God healing and faith and all of those kind of things. And people would promote this idea that faith was sort of a power that you use to control God, like the force in Star Wars. It's not. Faith is to trust in God, to trust in what Jesus has done on the cross, and it creates a relationship with him where we're declared righteous and, and adopted into his family and become, we become his beloved children. And we receive the righteousness of Christ, and our life is hidden with Christ, in Christ with God. And faith is to pray and say, God, please heal me. And then when God says no, we say, okay, I trust you. God, please do this. And we, I was sort of taught in this, in this background of just, you need to pray. You need to have more faith. You need to do more faithy things. You need to evidence more faith. You need to, your voice needs to re- inflect faith when you pray out loud in front of everybody. And then you're going to force God's hand. That's a frustrating thing. Your arms are too short to box with God. You can't force God's hand by your own faith. What it is, my, my, one of my theology teachers in, in Bible college said, it's faith in faith, not faith in God, okay? So when I have these conversations like, God's going to do this, I'm gonna, just going to keep praying. What if he says no? No, no, I'm, I'm going to keep praying. Well, God can say no. God can say, no, I'm not going to do it. Now, what does trust look like then? When my daughters come to me, Dad, can we just have, you know, junk food all the time? I'm like, yes. And then Angie's like, no. And then we're like, okay, let's trust someone that knows better for us, like how we're supposed to live, okay? That's what, that's what trusting God looks like. He knows best. He's the one that made us to be who we are. He's calling us to himself, not to, not to treat him like some sort of magical power. We don't become shaman that manipulate the spirits. We trust in God. And he might put us through sickness. He might make us not be able to hear. He might make us lame, but we can glorify God in that because ultimately he came to save us. He came to make us whole for all eternity. He came to make us part of his family to prepare us for the kingdom that's coming that we already are manifesting. We already have eternal life. So Jesus claims to be God. 
He turns to this guy and says, stand up, pick him your mat and walk. He heals this guy. This guy's walking around, and he just walks away. He doesn't even pay attention, not like, thank you, Jesus, or whatever. He's just carrying his mat now. The Pharisees see him. Now, here's the problem. It's the Sabbath day. Here are the regulations that they'd come up with for the Sabbath day. 39 categories of things that you can't do. You can't sow, you can't do sowing, plowing, reaping, binding, sheaves, threshing, winnowing, selecting, grinding, sifting, kneading, baking. I don't have enough fingers. Shearing wool, cleaning, combing, dyeing, spinning, stretching the threads, making loops, weaving threads, separating the threads, tying a knot, untying a knot, sewing, tearing, trapping, slaughtering, skinning, tanning, smoothing, ruling lines, cutting, writing, erasing, building, breaking down, extinguishing a fire, kindling a fire, striking a final hammer blow, or carrying. Jesus commands this guy to carry his mat. So he's walking around carrying on the Sabbath. He's clearly breaking a category of the rules that they had created, carrying. And that's what they say to him. You're carrying. He's like, what? No, he's like, no, Jesus told me that not to carry. Jesus told me to carry my, or he didn't know who Jesus was. So the, the rabbis were trying to figure out how can we protect our people from the history of failure that we've had around the Sabbath because the prophets in the Old Testament very clearly said you were exiled because you broke my Sabbath. And so they tried to make rules around the rules. They call it fencing, this tradition of fencing the rules. So they made extra rules around the rules. And the, the, if you, even if you broke the extra rules, you weren't breaking the real rule. That's kind of how they looked at it. So they made all these extra rules. And then they got to the point where they're discussing, like, well, God, is God breaking the Sabbath? Like, is God working on the Sabbath? This is this twisted mindset of the moralist that you somehow think that your relationship with God is like a magical right or some sort of equation by which God works all the time or you manipulate him. No, your relationship with God that call, is calling you to is a personal relationship with a person. Okay, equations don't work on people. I've been married for a minute now, 20 years. I've tried it for, I tried for many years in the initial phases of trying to get equations to work. Angie's not having it. Personal relationships are not based on sort of, if I do this, you do that every time. Like, this is how we're going to make it work, right? It's ridiculous to try to put that onto God as well. That's what magic that's what moralism does. I'm going to control God by how I live or by what I do or by what I say. So these guys are having the discussion, is God breaking the Sabbath? Because he, is he still working on the Sabbath? Here's what a commentator says. The consensus among the rabbis, too, was that God works on the Sabbath. For otherwise, providence itself would weakly go into abiescence. Uh, it would disappear. About the end of the first century, four eminent rabbis, Gamaliel, Eleazar, Azariah, and Akiba, that's the awesome name of a rabbi, discussed the point and concluded that although God works constantly, he cannot rightly be charged with violating the Sabbath laws since the entire universe is his domain and therefore he never carries anything outside it. Otherwise, put, God fills the whole world and in any case, God lifts nothing to a height greater than his own stature. So God can't really be seen to be breaking the Sabbath law because he's always working in his own domain. So God is always working. They, they, they understand God is always working. Now look what Jesus says when they accuse him of breaking the Sabbath. My father's always working and so am I. Jesus claims to be God. 
right in front of these guys. And he's claiming to be God not only by what he says, but the proof is this guy carrying around his mat who's been lame for 38 years. The people that study the Old Testament prophets know the Messiah would make the lame walk. So Jesus makes the lame guy walk, right? Quite an accomplishment. And then they accuse him of breaking the Sabbath, and he says, I'm God. (laughs) I always am working. They would have understood when he says, my father is always working, and so am I. And we see they clearly understood it because they didn't say, oh, this is the Messiah. They said, oh, let's kill him. That's the moralist. You want power. You want to control God. Jesus confirms that he's God. Now this guy, jump back to this guy. Who healed you? Who told you to, he's like, I don't know. I don't know, the guy. The guy who told me to get up and walk after 38 years told me to carry my mat. Like, you know a guy that can heal after 38. Who is it? So Jesus finds him later on. It's interesting to note, though, like, God's grace is poured out on this man. He got what he didn't deserve. So Jesus looks him up later on in the temple. He runs into him and says, Stop sinning. No, 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 sorry. That's where we want to start. He says, now you're well. Stop sinning or something worse might happen to you. Let's make it clear. This, man's, this man was living in poverty in the first century. If you couldn't work, you were basically, the only work you could do was to beg. That's how you could make a living, okay? But this man's true poverty was not material. It was slavery to sin. Jesus is helping us understand who this guy is. And the way that this is talked about, we conjecture that his disability seemed to maybe be related to how he was living before because of what Jesus says to him now. He said, now you're well. Stop sinning or something even worse might happen to you. So Jesus teaches that there's something worse than being disabled for 38 years. We would think to ourselves, nothing could be worse. Yeah, there is. Sin leads to death. Jesus delivers us from sin. First, inviting us then to walk in freedom. Galatians says, as we're set free, as we're we're delivered from slavery to sin, it says that it's for freedom that you've been set free. Jesus sets us free so that we can be free and not slaves to sin any longer. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 32, which we often recite, we often read about this when we're doing our communion, because this is the instruction about communion to the Corinthian church from Paul. Paul says, what I, pa- I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself. One night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and gave thanks for it gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. 
So anyone who eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord unworthily is guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. That's why you should examine yourself before eating the bread and drinking the cup. For if you eat the bread or drink the cup without honoring the body of Christ, you are eating and drinking God's judgment upon yourself. That is why many of you are weak and sick and some have even died. But if we would examine ourselves, we would not be judged by God in this way. When we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned along with the world. God clearly uses sickness in our lives to discipline us. I mean, that's what the scripture says. People were living in an unworthy way. They were, we can, I don't want to talk about how the Corinthians were doing it, but we went through Corinthians. They were messed up. And during this time, they were taking it very lightly. And then some of them got sick. Now, we would think to ourselves, well, sickness is the worst thing. No, it's, it's actually not. Sickness, God is using at this point to sort of wake somebody up and say, don't keep going down that road. He's calling them back to himself. It's always redemptive as God is working in, in our lives. He's working to make us more like Christ. Jesus can make us well because he is God. He says, I'm always working. Now you are well. Stop sinning. We are saved by grace, grace, grace through faith. It's not work. Faith is evidenced in how we live. It's evidenced by the work that we do. But faith itself is not a work. It doesn't merit anything. It's, it's a trust. I trust Jesus. I trust that what he did on the cross took away all my sins, past, present, and future. And I'm declared righteous because that's what I trust in, his righteousness. So Jesus heals this man who could care less Because Jesus cares more than we can even imagine. The good news is not that sin is now overlooked. No, sin has a great price. And Jesus paid that price. Jesus didn't go to the cross and pay that terrible price to enable us to forget about him and live however we want. To live in sin. He came to put sin to death. He came to put an end to sin. And he continues to confront sin in our lives. By the Spirit of God, John 16, when he comes, he will convict the world of its sin and of God's righteousness and of the coming judgment. The world's sin is that it refuses to believe in me. The Spirit of God, when you put your faith in Christ, he fills you with his Spirit, and then that Spirit is going to convict you of sin. When you feel that conviction, it's not condemnation. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's conviction of sin so that we would grow out of it, so that we would get past it, so that we would mature in Christ and be able to care less about ourselves because sin, in, in some sense, is ultimately selfishness. It's all about me. And Jesus wants us to be able to trust in him and say, I can care for other people because you're caring for me. Not care so much about myself. Romans chapter 8. If you live by its dictates, sin or the flesh, you will die. But if through the power of the Spirit you put to death the deeds of your sinful nature, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. If by the power, through the power of the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of your sinful nature, you will live. God has given us in Christ the power of the Spirit to put to death sin in our lives. We might be struggling to stop sinning like a Pharisee on, 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 on a Sunday or on the Sabbath. 
like, oh, I want to carry this. Oh, I better not. Oh, like trying to keep all this elaborate rules that we've concocted. God wants you to trust in Jesus and to grow out of your sin by his power. He's not, he's not telling you, come and follow me and then grab your bootstraps and make yourself a better person. We're saved by faith. We're, we're declared righteous by faith in what Jesus has done and we're sanctified. We grow up in our faith by faith in what Jesus has done. It's not that you're, Jesus says, all right, now you're well. Now try your hardest to be more like me. <laughs> no, Jesus says, now you're well. Stop sinning. Sin is to rebel against God, to say, I'm going to go my own way. I'm going to decide for myself what's right and wrong. You don't know how to help me. You don't know how much I need this thing right here. Otherwise, you would have given it to me. God says, that thing's going to ruin you. I don't want you to have it. So he gives us the spirit to convict us of sin, but also the power to overcome, to put to death sin in our lives by his word. James chapter one says, don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says, otherwise you're only fooling yourselves. For if you listen to the word and don't obey it, it's like glancing at your face in a mirror. You see yourself and walk away and forget what you look like. The word of God is like a mirror. We look at it and we say, oh, I need to cut my hair. (laughs) Romans chapter 10. Faith comes through hearing and that is hearing the good news about Christ. If I need more power to kill sin in my life, I need more of God's word in my heart, in my mind. Dwelling on God's word is like a strong shield. It's like filling up myself with an antidote to sin by our community. Hebrews chapter 10, let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works and let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. God's given us a family, a body of Christ, other people that are following him, that are sinners, saved by grace, that can come to us and say, brother, sister, turn from this. Or we can say to them, I'm really struggling to rebel against God in this area of my life. In this part of my life, I'm just giving God the middle finger right now. I know it, and I want to stop. We can, we, can help, we can help one another in this rebellion against God that we manifest in our sin by calling it out, by praying for one another, by being there for one another. God has given us the community to help us overcome sin. God is in the business of forgiving sin which is ultimate healing and deliverance from the true problem that we face. And as we think about this today, I invite you to receive again the grace of God. There's nothing that you've ever done to merit Jesus' sacrifice for you. There's nothing I've ever done to make Jesus go to that cross, to allow the loving Father to give you his presence and his forgiveness to receive the son's perfect righteousness and this is all by faith in this true word that we have in front of us john 5 14 jesus says now you are well so stop sinning or something even worse may happen to you i'm gonna pray father first of all i do pray for for healing in our lives i pray for healing from sin 
Lord, and, and even as we watch that video, Father, I pray that you would heal Ezra, Aaron's son, from the, the condition that he has with his eyes. I pray that you, you would heal Maddie from the condition she has in her ears. I pray they would be restored, Lord Jesus. Your will be done. I pray for our church, Father, that you would heal us from the, the wicked ways that are in us, from the ways that we've turned from you, Lord, from the, the blindness spots that we have that we don't see. Lord, shine a light into our hearts, into our body, and help us to be healed. Help us to be healthy. Help us to be pursuing you. Help us to be sharing, Lord. Like we've heard said, come and see. Help us that invitation to be on our lips, Lord. Come and see Jesus. I thank you, Lord Jesus, that nothing we've ever done merits our salvation, that it's completely your grace. Lord, increase our faith, I pray this morning. Increase our faith. In Jesus' name, amen. So one of the ways that we demonstrate our faith is to come to the table. Every week we come and remember Christ's body broken for us and his blood shed a new covenant that washes away our sins. So when we come to the table, we come with our family, we come with our church family, and we remember together. Paul says, we remember, Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, but this also declares his death until he returns. Jesus died for sin. He paid a terrible price to make us more like him. And that's, that's his objective. So let's come this morning with your family. You can go get your little ones in Sunday school, bring them in.